pause this morning. If we were to take a step back and if we were to consider how British society has changed in the last number of years in its view of Christianity, surely you and I would have to admit to have been shocked by what it is that we have seen in little over a generation. Uh, we have got, gone from being a society that, what would you say, respects at least, reveres the Christian faith. We have gone from that to being a culture that now kind of derides or demeans, it would seem, anyone who professes the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was thinking about this uh, earlier, uh, that in years gone by, in parts of the United Kingdom, such was, and get this, such was the honor that was attached to Christians. In some parts of the country, if you were an elder in the church, you would be afforded time off work in order to attend some meetings of the church. Can you believe that? You know, imagine that time off, paid time off, if there's matters of the Kirk session needing your attention. We've gone from that to this situation today. We've gone from, from that to a country that seems to be entirely set on pushing out the name of Jesus in the public square. Well, last week, if you were here, uh, we noticed that uh, focusing as it does on Jews who are living in the Persian Empire, one of the main themes of the book of Esther is how the people of God should live in a hostile environment, a hostile context. And this morning, it is to that theme that we turn. So this morning, we in here, in Esther chapter 2, we are going to learn from God much about how we can survive, but more than that, how you and I can actually thrive in this, our context of hostility towards Almighty God. And I, I think there are three main themes or three ideas that we need to give our attention to uh, this morning from this portion of Scripture. So, with these things said, I would invite you to please turn with me in your Bibles uh, to have uh, this reading, Esther chapter 2, to have this portion of Scripture open in front of you. Uh, so, the page number, if you need that, is page 502. So it's Esther chapter 2. And first of all, let's consider what we see here about the hiding of an identity. That's our first idea here, the hiding of an identity. Uh, Last week we saw an instance of rebellion, uh, did we not? In Esther chapter 1, Queen Vashti, do you remember it? Uh, She defied her husband, and she was banished as a result. Well, here this morning, we see the search for her successor begin. I'm sure you would agree with me, would you not, that this is some, (laughs) this is some search for the new queen. Do you remember what we said last week? That Xerxes' kingdom stretched over most of the known world, and so does the search so you see what we've got here? Like we've got all of these men, all of these commissioners going from, what was it, from India to Kush, India to Egypt. And what are they looking for? They're looking for beautiful women. And try to round up, round up any beautiful women they see and to try and bring them back to the king. This is a search, some search. Now, as soon as we're introduced to the search, 
we're also, I'm sure you notice this, we're also introduced to two people who will go on to become two of the main characters in the storyline of Esther. Now, this is what I want you to get and hear. Listen to me. In the way that these two characters are introduced here, light is shone for us in the main theme of S chapter 2, in the way that they are introduced. So how is that? Who do we have here? Do you see? The first character of the two is a man. Look at verse 5, will you, just to see how this man is introduced. Have a look. How is he introduced? It says, there was in the citadel of Susa, A Jew. And that ethnicity is underlined. Now look how it goes on. He's a Jew that's brought to the front. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, the son of Jair. He's been brought into Esau. So do you see, it is the very fact that he is a Jew. It is the fact that he is a covenant child of God that is important here. But wait a minute. What's the guy's name? Do you see? It is Mordecai. So yes, he is a Jew. But do you see, he has got a Babylonian name. He is a Jew with a name, in fact, that is derived from a Babylonian god. So we've got Mordecai. Who's the other character, though? Uh, It's Mordecai's cousin, is it not? This, uh, This young woman... Uh, an orphan uh, woman. Now, what's noticeable about her is the fact, obviously, that she's got two names. Two names. So have a look at verse 7. What are the names? She is called, what? Do you see? Hadassah. A Hebrew name. So she is a, she's a Jew. We get it. Okay, but hang on. What is her other name? Same verse. Her name is Esther. Do you see? Again, it's a Babylonian name. Again, it is a name that is derived, actually, from a pagan god. Do you see the the point? Do you see what's going on here? These are people with a foot in two camps. Yes, they're Jews. Yes, they are the covenant children of God. But what are they also? They're also facing this pressure to assimilate. They're Jews, but they've got pressure and everything they are, pressure and everything around them to adopt, to embrace the values, the practices of their pagan context you see now what we're going to see in this chapter and what we do see now is that sort of tension that exists between who they are their identity as the covenant children of god the the, the tension between their identity and their context we see it come to a head now do you see how it comes to a head i think you've got to imagine it like this for a moment esther's doorbell goes (laughs) and who's at the door but the beauty police, you know, they've, they've, they've heard on their search, they've heard on the, the, the grapevine that, oh, you know, Esther is a stunner. You know, you should go and knock on her door. She's an absolute beauty. So they arrive at the door and they whisk her away to the harem in the king's palace. Wait a minute. Like, do you see what we were told? I mean, what is it, friends, that is absolutely notable for its omission at this point? What does not happen? At that very point, neither Mordecai nor Esther say anything about the fact that Esther is a Jew. Isn't that something? 
like despite the implications of being taken off into the palace, neither of them say a word, nothing at all about who Esther is, about her spiritual identity. Isn't, isn't that something? Nothing, not a word. But maybe you say this morning, like many others have, well, of course she doesn't say anything. She's in danger here, right? Uh, she's a victim and, and she can't do anything about these circumstances. But come on. Like consider the spiritual danger that she is putting herself in here. Like you can see what's going on. Like by being taken into the palace, into the harem, what does it mean? She's going to be isolated entirely from the rest of the community of faith, isn't she? She's going to have to there break all the food laws and all the religious requirements of the people of Israel, isn't she? Isn't she? I think about it being carried off like this, what's going to lead to? Eventually she is going to have to marry a pagan man. Are we really saying that this is okay, that she kept quiet? And isn't it true that elsewhere in Scripture, we do see the people of God stand up and speak in a similar circumstance? I'm sure most of us know the story of Daniel very well, right? Don't we? What happens with Daniel and his three friends? You know the story? It's very similar. They're in exile. They are facing what we would think of as being an impossible situation. But what did they do? They... Speak up. They speak. And what does God do? He so blesses that that they do not have to assimilate. They do not have to compromise. And what I think we've got to see is that, okay, there's nothing like that from Esther, but it's worse. Esther seems to embrace this newfound situation. Like the language is really telling. Look at verse 9 with me. And this is repeated all the way through here. That once Esther is in this harem, she begins to go about winning favor from other people. So do you see, rather than her just being passive here and a victim, she's actively sort of embracing, actively trying to win favor from people. She cleverly promotes herself, doesn't she? She takes Haggai's advice about what to take into the king. She tries and pleases the king. Look, do you see what is going on? Do you see the point? Here is a person remaining entirely quiet about their spiritual identity. Why? To be accepted, to advance in this pagan world. How do we apply that? It's kind of obvious in some ways, is it not? Does this situation not take us to what is the greatest elephant in the room for the modern church? Doesn't it? Is there not in Britain today what we might call the scandal of the silent saved? For whatever reason, like be it our fear of ridicule and be it our fear of scorn or being passed over for a job promotion or for another job. What happens? What's the case for many of us? Out there, we say nothing about our identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that not true? And is it not a scandal? And, and, and we know we shouldn't do this. We know that we should not remain mute. We know what Christ has commanded, that we are to let our light shine before men. And yet we say nothing. 
Well, friends, this morning, please do not allow that silence. If it sounds very familiar to you, do not allow that just to lead to unbearable guilt in here this morning. Instead, take heart. Because you know the rest of the story of Esther, don't you? Like you know what God is going to do. That despite her being of questionable judgment, what does God do? He gives her another opportunity, doesn't he? He gives her another chance to stand up and to stand out as a covenant child of God. And surely that should encourage us this morning. I say this to you today. Be hidden no more out there. Be hidden as a Christian no longer. Because the greatest need that our hostile society has is to hear of lives that are changed by grace and to see those lives in action for the glory of God. Esther said nothing. She said nothing. Let us not do the same. So we see a hiding of an identity. A second thing we see here is the filling of a vacancy. The filling of a vacancy. So uh, if you're following the story, you can see what's going on now. There's tension. Uh, Esther is with all the other girls, all the other beautiful women who are standing in this palace, harem, and they're all just waiting their turn, and then it comes time. Esther's name is called, and she's got to go in and see the king. What happens? Well, Xerxes is clearly delighted with what he sees, isn't he? Like we've been told, I think it says earlier on the chapter that Esther was lovely in form and lovely in, in features. And, and Xerxes clearly relates to this. He clearly agrees with this because what happens, unlike all of the other girls who after their time with the king, did you see what happens to them? They're kind of shipped off into another part of the palace, aren't they? Just pushed away. Unlike them, what happens here with 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 Esther? She's immediately made queen. You can almost hear kind of Xerxes, can't you? He's like shouting through, guys, knock the search in the head. We've found her. I've found the woman. It's going to be my wife. I've found her. And the section ends with this crown being placed on Esther's head and a banquet. What else? If you were here last week, what else but a banquet being held in her honor? What do we learn? Like, what is the message there for, for you and I from that? Well, last Sunday night, uh, I asked you, although we were looking at First Timothy, I asked you if you were here last Sunday night to read this story again. I wonder if you did it. I'm sure you did it. Did you read the way through uh, the book of Esther? So this morning, we know what transpires in the story, don't we? Like, we know that later on, the people of Israel here are going to face real difficulty. They're going to face being eradicated. And they are going to need a person in a position of authority to come to their rescue, to work for them, to serve them, to help them, aren't they? So do you see what is happening here in this chapter? It has begun with this crucial, almighty vacancy. And how has it ended? God has filled the vacancy. Do you see? He has filled it for his people's benefit. And he has filled it with the person of his choosing. God has filled this vacancy. 
I want you to see, and when you think this, that that is something that we see time and again throughout Scripture, isn't it? That when his people are in need, God raises up someone and fills a vacancy. Can you think of examples of that? Yes, we see it here with Esther. Don't we see it in 1 Samuel? You know, the people of God are desperately in need of a, a king after God's own heart. And what does God do? He raises up King David. He fills a vacancy. We see it in the New Testament as well, though, do we not? Countless thousands of souls throughout Europe crying out to God, crying out for an apostle to the Gentiles. And what does God do? He raises up the apostle Paul. He fills the vacancy. Do you see it in scripture time and time and time again? Should people need it, God fills the vacancy. Now, I think there are a few directions that we need to go in applying that. Most obviously to the life of the church. I think if you in here, I think if all of us in here were to put our minds to it, we can probably now think of a church that is currently vacant. Can you think of a church that is without a minister? Most of us can. I think many of us in here know firsthand actually how trying that situation can be. What are we seeing here? That as God has done here with Esther, that should it be for his people's eternal benefit, that should it be, should it be for their ultimate good, what will God do? God will raise up a person of his choosing, that he shall, if it is for their good, he shall fill the vacancy. There's another direction, though, we should go with this. I want you to think about yourself. I want you to think about the place that you work. Now, most of us uh, work in, uh, well, some of us work at home. Some of us work in the, the offices and the businesses of London, do we not? Now, think about your situation for a moment where you work. Imagine it like this, that before the creation of the world, the almighty God has looked into that circumstance He's looked in to your friends and to your colleagues. And let me ask you this. What has Almighty God seen? A vacancy. He's seen a vacancy for someone to go into that place and to witness to the glory and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let me ask you the obvious question. With whom has he filled that vacancy? With you. Isn't that a thought? That as God here raises up Esther for his own glory, that God has placed you amongst the people in your life, placed you there. Why? For his glory. For his glory. Does that not alter and inform how we live in this hostile land? But the third direction we must go is this. Friends, is it not the case that as the people of God, you and I were once in need. That because of our wickedness, because of our sinfulness, like the people of this book, we were in need of a deliverer. And what has God done? He has sent to us his very own son. Do you see what that is? 
do you see what God has done? He has filled the vacancy of a redeemer. He has filled the vacancy with the Lord Jesus Christ. I think we should rejoice this morning that our God, he sees, he knows. And should it be for our benefit, what does he do? He fills vacancy. So we have seen so far, we have seen the hiding of an identity. We have seen the filling of a vacancy. The third and the final thing is the preparing of a bride-to-be. The preparing of a bride-to-be. Hey, were you here at LCPC last Sunday morning? If you were, uh, then perhaps you'll remember how we closed the sermon. We said that if we are going to understand uh, this story over the next few weeks, that we have to look at it with gospel eyes. We have to read this story with gospel minds, and we have to ask of this story, what is it that God is seeking to teach us in this story about his great plan of salvation? Remember that? Well, if we approach Esther chapter 2 and the story that we've read together, if we approach it like this, I wonder, do you see the parallel that exists between what happens with Esther here and the future that awaits for you and I in the kingdom of God. Do you? What is in store for you as a child of God? What is it that is in store for the church? Is it not the case that one day as the great bride of Christ, that as happens here with Esther, that we shall be presented and presented to our king. Is that not true of us? That the holy city, the new Jerusalem, what does it say in Revelation 21? That we will, as the church, come down out of the clouds and we will be presented as a bride adorned for her husband. Do you see it? Do you not? Now, I just want to close by emphasizing what we learn about that final day here in Esther chapter 2. See, I wonder this. I wonder when Ijidai read this portion of Scripture, did you notice what has to happen to all the girls that are gathered together? Did you see it? I don't know if the women and the ladies in this congregation, they like this idea or not, but did you see? They've got to be prepared. There was a year-long makeup program. Why does that sound? You know, six months of purely oils and myrrh, and then six months of cosmetics, and what else was it? Perfumes, something else. All of that type of preparation to meet the king. I want you to see this morning that that's what's happening to us today. That we, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are today going through what you might call the beautifying process of sanctification. You see it, do you? And you see what this preparation to meet our king, you see what it involves. You know it as a Christian so well. It involves suffering, not cosmetics, but it involves trials and it involves difficulties. Does it not? Why? Because through 
all of those things. You and I, the church of Christ, we are being made more spiritually beautiful. We are being, through those things, being made more attractive for our king. Now, these things are difficult. We're trying the, the trials facing Christians in the UK today can sometimes be too many to count. But what I want to remind you of as we end is that one day, hear this, you will sing and praise God for every single one of them. One day you will. One day you will be thankful. You will see that all of this has been worthwhile. And you see why that is, don't you? Because like here with Esther, through that preparation, one day you will receive a crown. What are we learning? James, James says, blessed is the one who perseveres because having stood the test, they will receive the crown of life. Don't you see it? All those in here this morning who are saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, one day we get to see Jesus one day we're going to see the king. We're going to be presented to the king. We're going to enjoy the marriage supper. But we are also, each one of us, going to ascend the steps to a throne that has been prepared for us. And surely it is that final moment that colors how it is that you and I as Christians live today. Isn't that right? Doesn't it color how we live in this hostile world? No. Because what do we know? We know that all of this is passing away. See, this hostility and the tension and the ridicule, it goes. All of it passes away. And so until that day comes, let us, as Christians, embrace this current situation. And I plead with you to see this world and this life for what it is. What is all of this? It is, but preparation and it's preparation for you and i to see our king let's pray